Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. It's uh, great to be here this morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Bobby, and I have the privilege of uh, preaching and sharing God's word this morning. And so the title of today's sermon, as it says up here, Following Jesus is so hard for good people. So before we begin, can we pray? Uh, God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for waking us up. Thank you for giving us uh, rest the little or maybe the lot that we had. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for this time where uh, you set apart Sunday mornings as a time for us as your people to just hear your word, to be rejuvenated, to be reminded, God, of the things that we so easily forget. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that we would remember what you've told us, what you've been telling us, and what you always tell us, Lord God, about yourself, about ourselves, And God, just about this world. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would go forth in power. And, Lord, that you would open up our eyes and we would really be able to see it and hear it in a way that we never were able to before. And, God, this can only happen through the power of your spirit, Lord. I can try to do a lot of things and I can muster personality and jokes and all these things, Lord God. But those are all powerless, God. Lord, you are in heaven and we're here on earth. And so we stand in silence and reverence and we just thank you and we pray for your power in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, I saw the movie Les Mis for the first time. How many of you have seen Les Mis? Oh gosh, I'm about to spoil it for so many people. Uh, But I'm going to do my best not to spoil the movie. But I do want to give you a little bit of background. In the movie Les Mis... Uh, we're introduced to two characters who appear throughout the story. There's Jean Valjean, who's played by Hugh Jackman. And when the, the, when the movie starts, we're introduced to Valjean as this convict. He's finished 20 years in prison for stealing bread and then trying to escape. And as the movie starts, he just finished his 20 years, and he's about to be released on parole. His parole officer tells him, you've got to show up now every month to make sure in keeping in line with your parole. Well, Valjean uh, leaves, and that night he's trying to find a place to stay, and he stumbles upon the house of a priest, and the priest welcomes him into the house. And so Valjean has a, a, a meal, and he's warmed up, and he goes to bed. That night, you know, after being jaded and feeling defeated and just knowing who he is, he sees the priest's um, servants putting away some silver in their cupboards and he's looking at that silver well when everyone goes to bed he gets up and he steals all the silver and he takes off the next morning the cops come bring him in and throw him down at the floor of the priest and they said this guy said that you gave him all this silver tell us what you want us to do with him and the priest looks at him and the servants look at him and the priest says um my friend you left so soon, you forgot to take these. And the priest walks over, he grabs two of the silver candlesticks and gives it to Valjean. The cops are looking at him like, what's going on? Valjean is looking at the priest like, what's going on? The priest says, thank you, officers, you've done your duty. May God bless you, be dismissed. And he looks at Valjean and says, I've saved your life for God. He's just wrecked. And uh, um, later on, he, he's trying to, f- he, he doesn't have any categories to put this act in. He, he, he has no idea what to do with this. And he's radically affected by this. He doesn't know what to do with this mercy and grace that he's been given. And finally, he's wrestling with himself in this, in this church. He's wrestling with himself, and he says, that's it. I've got to change. That's the only thing that can happen. And the rest of the movie shows how his life is radically 
affected and changed by this grace. And how everyone who's in touch with Valjean is wrecked by the grace that he shows to them. Well, on the other hand, as the screen just went blank, I'll try to put it back up. You've got Javert. Uh, And he is the faithful police officer who was the parole officer for, for Valjean. Now, Javert was a faithful officer. You know, he wasn't the type that accepted bribes. He wasn't the type that tried to swindle people. He was faithful to his job. And when Valjean doesn't show up for his parole, well, he makes it his mission to find Valjean and hunt him down. So the movie just goes throughout and goes throughout, and it's like this kind of chase scene, this this chase between these two people. And finally, through a turn of circumstances, Javert is caught by certain people, and he is now handcuffed and locked up, and these people bring Valjean in and show him Javert. And uh, Javert looks at Valjean and says, do what you need to do. I know I've been hunting you down this long. Do what you need to do. And Valjean comes up to him, and he releases him. And he says, go, you're released. And Javert says, don't worry, I'm still going to get you. And he, and, and he escapes. As the movie comes to a climax, Javert is brought to the same point as Valjean. What do I do by this amazing act of grace? By being freed, set free for no good purpose. But his, and I'm not going to ruin the movie, his response would be vastly different. How is it that the good guy missed out on life and the bad guy was the one who was saved? You know, there's a lot of good people inside church and outside church. Yet Jesus, through the parable that we're going to read today, shows us that there's only one way to build your whole life and your whole identity. It's not about being good. And it's more than just avoiding being bad. It's a whole different way altogether. And today we're going to read a a very familiar parable. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector found in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. So if you want to pull that up, you can, uh, if you have your Bible. Otherwise, I have it up on the screen. And in this parable, Jesus is going to break every paradigm that the people back then, and even us, believe about what it means to be good, what it means to be bad, and what it means to have a relationship with God. Ready? Let's, uh, let's go into some background. Let's uh, read this text. Luke 18, 9 to 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up on the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, the background uh, begs us to answer this question. Who is this passage for? Right? We, we want to figure out who is this passage for. Just to give you a little context, Jesus is walking back to Jerusalem. He's with his disciples, and, and he's healing and doing his ministry. And then he stops to tell this story. So who is this passage for? Well, I think it says in verse 9 kind of who it is, right? It's some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that the group of people is called the... Wow, that's where you participate. The group of people is called the? Some of my teacher friends are like, oh my gosh, these are horrendous students. Yeah, those are the Pharisees, right? Those were the religious leaders of the day. They prided themselves on being set apart by strict adherence to the law that God gave 
in, the, in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, in the Mosaic Law. Many scholars have written that the Pharisees had over 600 laws that they tried to abide by. But somewhere along the line, this preoccupation, this thing that started with good intentions, became more preoccupied about power and politics and the law rather than God himself. So let's start there. The parable is definitely for these guys. However, there's a universal audience as well. Look at what it says here. It says this in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. You know, a Pharisee going to the temple was not unusual. I mean, that's what he was supposed to do. That was his home turf. But the tax collector, why was he there? You know, the tax collector was hated by his fellow Israelites. The tax collectors were the guys who, when the Roman Empire moved in and conquered that territory, the Roman Empire went through and said, all right, we need some people, you know, from your country who can collect the taxes for us. I know it's not going to be a popular thing, but we still need some people to do it. And so the tax collectors were the ones who said, all right, I mean, I guess we can make some money doing this. And so they took the job that the Roman government gave them. Now, you could only imagine how unpopular this was, right? So these guys were the guys who betrayed their own countrymen so that the Roman government could get their take. And not only that, they would take more than what the Roman government would ask for their own keep. So why would this guy, this tax collector, come to the temple to pray? He would bully, threaten, and harass his very own people. And those were the people that he was going to see in the temple. Why would he dare even show himself and show his face at a place where everybody's going to see him? I mean, somebody's got to jump him, I would suppose, right? Well, you know, one of the common mantras of life today, you probably hear it at work or you probably say it to yourself, is, well, nobody's perfect. Right? Nobody's perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. Yeah, nobody's perfect. You're right, right? Nobody needs to remind you that you're not perfect. But the question is, what do you do with that sense of imperfection? We are wired in a way to fix that sense of brokenness or imperfection or I'm not living up to my standards. I'm not doing what I want to do. And it doesn't matter if you're a religious person or an irreligious person. Everybody's got some standards that we try to live up to. And at the end of the day, you just, you know, like I just didn't live up to my standards. In one form or another, people dedicate or spend a lot of their life in pursuit of wholeness that we deserve to be here. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but I remember feeling like this, especially in college. I hope I'm not useless. I hope once I'm, I graduate that I'm not a drain on society. I hope I, 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 I can at least do something to contribute to whatever's going on here on this earth. Everyone's got this universal sense that I don't want to be a drain. Well, for Jewish people at the time, the way to get rid of that nagging feeling was to uphold your religious duties, to go to the temple at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. and make a sacrifice to God as an atonement for sin. So what are these two guys doing? They're expressing this human universal need to try to wipe away the stain of not performing to our standards. This tax collector, to his own personal peril, he doesn't know what to do with himself, but he just decides, I, I, forget it. I, I just got to go up there and, as well. That's the only thing I know to do. That's the only way that God is prescribed to get rid of this feeling. So I'm going to do it. You know, here's the thing. All of us are looking for ways to get rid of that sense of failure. Whether that failure is at work or at home or with your friends, your family, we try harder to be better. On certain days, if you're like me, you feel pretty good about yourself because you've lived up to your standards. And, you know, whatever your standards are that you have, 
you've lived up to them and you feel pretty good. But then there's those days where you know you haven't lived up to your standards and you just feel like a complete jerk. Well, Pastor Dave showed this slide a few months ago. And he said this. Every day of our life, we're trying to adjust this thing. And in the human heart, that dial keeps swinging back and forth. We're trying to, to move that dial to the right and say, yeah, 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 we're, we're righteous, we're good. And sometimes it swings to the other side, the unrighteous. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be righteous and unrighteous. You can fill in whatever standard you want on either one of those things, but we're trying to do it. Some people say, well, I'm not religious or I, I'm, you know, I just kind of do my own thing. So maybe your standard is free and not free, Okay. And so you, at the end of some days, you feel freer than others. And at the end of days, you don't feel free. Some of you might have a standard that says, uh, not conformist and conformist. And so, you know, when, if, when you're living nonconformist, then you've reached your standards. But when you're a conformist, well, then you haven't reached it. Some of you, it says, amazing mom. And it says, horrendous mom. And you're just trying to adjust that dial so bad. And some of you say, fantastic employee and jerk who we should fire. And you're just trying every day. And I'm sure if we could imagine, there's like 50 different dials on each one of us with different standards we have and all of these dials going back and forth throughout the day. And throughout the day, we're trying to fix that. So this Pharisee comes up. And this tax collector come up at the same time to the same place. And they're both trying to do the same thing. Get their dial to stop shaking and feel okay about themselves. Well, in this parable, Jesus is saying, it's not about adjusting your dial and keeping it. There's a whole different way altogether. And I'm hoping that as we hear the story today, we'll be rocked to the core about what the kingdom of God is really about. So two points today. Two points. Number one, Jesus's kingdom, the one he's talking about, the one he's inaugurating, the one he's bringing forth is not about comparing the wrong things, but considering the right things. His kingdom is not about comparing the wrong things, but considering the right things. And secondly, Jesus's kingdom is not about feeling bad, but being broken. Well, let's start. Jesus's kingdom is not about comparing the wrong things, but considering the right things. And we're going to start first with comparing the wrong things. Look at what it says in the text. The Pharisee starts by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Well, the, the way that the Pharisee adjusted his dial was by just comparing himself to other people. And he knew that he was pretty good and someone else was pretty bad, right? The kingdom is not about comparing those wrong things. There it is again, that need to feel like you're not a drain, that you're okay, that you're, you're worthwhile, that your presence and your existence is actually good. I don't think the Pharisee is outright arrogant. His confidence is in his behavior. He just believes what God wants is good behavior. So he compares himself to other people who have bad behavior. Well, husbands, I got a question for you. Have you ever, um, in a moment with your wife said, well, I know I stink, but at least I'm not like any husbands have said yeah, I, I, I haven't said that either, but I'm just wondering if anyone else has. <laughs> Can I try that? Please. Any husbands? Have, have you ever said that before? <laughs> Thank you, Andy. You know, in those moments, does it ever work when you say, well, I know I stink, but at least I'm not like, does it ever work? Does that ever garner the sympathy and the, uh, the, uh, the hope that you're hoping for. I don't think ever have I said that. And then Renee said, you know what? You are right. I could have been married to an adulterer. I could have been married to a crazy man, but you're just, you're so great. There's a comedian out there who says that we, we all want what we're supposed to be doing anyways. 
And he says, we all want accolades for the things that we're supposed to be doing. He goes, what do you want, a cookie? And that's, I think, what we want, right? And I think a foolproof way to distance yourself from God and other people is saying, well, at least I'm not like, yeah, I get angry, but at least I'm not like, or yeah, I worry a lot, but at least I'm not like, or yeah, it's hard for me to forgive, but at least I'm not like. One of the ways that we compensate for that nagging sense that we're not living up is by comparing ourselves to other people. One of the ways that we compensate is just through comparison. And I wonder, do you do that? Yeah, some of you are like, no, not me. Well, I've got a little test for you. Just check to see where your scoff factor is at. Check to see where your scoff factor, or I I call it the really factor, is at. Uh, Let me start with some uh, extreme examples. What's your reaction to the failure of this man? That's the scoff factor. Or what about this guy? That jerk. He's only sad because he got caught. He has no sympathy. You know, he doesn't care. He just bought her that gigantic ring because he wants to let everybody know that he's not going to do this again. I, I know I'm on to this guy. You know, one of the ways that we try to compensate for our own failure is by comparing ourselves to others. And we do. <laughs> really? With other people. We totally take ourselves, of what it, out self, uh, ourselves out of what it means to be that person right there. Right? We totally remove ourselves from whatever they grew up with. And we put our standards in and say, well, I know that my standards are this, this, and this. And I would never do something like that. You know, uh, I do this all the time with athletes, but I, sometimes I th- think back and sit, or sit and think back and go, okay, so if I grew up primarily in poverty and um, ever since I was in junior high, people told me that I have this amazing gift that only a few people on the planet have. And then once I got to high school, all these magazines and TV shows want me to be on their cover. And then after that, when I'm 20, people give me millions of dollars. And then after that, every night, a beautiful woman is throwing themselves at their, at my feet saying, I want to sleep with you. I would be totally different from them. Jerks. You know, that's an extreme example, but I think we do this all the time. What about in small group when uh, a small group member confesses some prayer request? Are you the person that goes, really? You struggle with that? Or are you the person that when you hear or when you leave from your uh, parents' house or uh, your mom and your dad, there's something that drives you up the wall about them and you just go, They haven't changed in like 40 years. Are you the person that, think about with your, if you're married, your husband or wife, that thing about them that just drives you up the wall and you go, they, are they ever going to change this? (laughs) What's wrong with them? And we project our own standards and what we're good at on top of them and their experiences and their parenting and all the things that they went through and then say, what's what's wrong with you? Aren't you going to change? And when they ask us the same thing, we go, I need some time, okay? I mean, give me a break. The kingdom is not about uh, comparing the wrong things. Well, here's what it says. The kingdom is about considering the right things. It says in uh, the next verse, sorry guys, I'm having a hard time clicking through. It says in verse 13, the tax collector standing far off, he wasn't even lifting his eyes to heaven. He said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. How is it possible that the bad guy was justified before God? Could you imagine how furious the Pharisees and the other religious people were who heard this? 
uh, you know, what we tend to do is we think, okay, I know what it is. You got to be humble. Okay. If we just be humble, then, then God will justify us. Okay. Bob, when are you going to tell us the three points to being humble? Just tell us the three points and we can go home and we can, you know, have a little bit more time after church. No, I, I don't think that's that. I think this is what the kingdom of God is about. Considering the right things. I want you today to consider that sin is trying to find your identity in anything else besides God. Most of us think that sin is just breaking rules. Okay, there's Ten Commandments. As long as I don't break them, I haven't sinned. Somebody asks you at the end of the day, uh, someone from church, how's your week going? And you, you flip back, okay, have I sinned? Have I sinned? Have I sinned? Have I done anything? Did I break any... No, I I had a great week. It's pretty good. But I want you to hear what Jesus is saying through this parable. Sin is trying to find your identity in anything else besides God. There was a Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, and he said this. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Faith is knowing your deepest identity can only come from your relationship and service to God. What he's saying is that we are meant to love God and place him first, and any other identity we try to find is sin. Tim Keller uh, puts it a little bit more succinctly when he says this, you sin when you make someone or something else more central to your significance purpose and happiness other than your relationship to God. Jesus breaks all the categories that people had back then about sin and even now about sin. He's saying it's not just about breaking rules, people. It's about making something else more central to your life, to your happiness, other than your relationship with God. As a result... You can sin by doing bad things, but also you can sin by making good things more important than God himself. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the fact that you can sin by being a bad father, by being a jerk to your, to your kids. You can sin by being a bad father, but you can sin just as much by being a good father or spouse who tries to give meaning to your life by just being a good father or spouse. That, if that's your primary identity, that is also sin. I want you to think about this. You can sin by being an angry and harsh mom just as much as you can by being a mom who completely centers her life about around her kids. And when they fail, your identity and your worth is crushed. That is also sin. You can sin by being a terrible employee who talks about the boss and steals things from work just as much as you can by being an employee that makes it your central goal and purpose to be the employee that your boss applauds and that everybody looks at and says, now that guy is what it means to be a good employee. That is also sin. And I think all the time, well, one more, you can sin also by being irresponsible with your health and your physical uh, status just as much as you can by letting your adherence to workout and your disciplined eating habits give purpose and meaning to your life. Jesus is breaking all of these categories and saying that sin is not just doing the bad things, but it's trying to make your identity based on good things as well. The greatest command to the Jewish people back then was from Deuteronomy 6.4. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. If that was the first and greatest command, then trying to do anything else, loving anything else with your heart, um, serving anything else, doing anything else, more than God was sin. So I want us to consider the right things when we think about sin. 
you know, going back to this, I think this is one of the reason why, one of the reasons, many reasons why Christian kids go bad. And Christian kids are the jerks who are the know-it-alls. Is because we as parents or unknowingly, we as a church community tell our kids, the main thing is to not break rules, kids. Just don't break any rules and you'll be good in God's eyes. But what we fail to tell them is, if you think being a student is more important than your identity found in Christ, if you think being a good kid is, being more, is, is the best thing, more important than finding your identity, all those things are sin. And Jesus is trying to help us to see and consider the right things. Second thing that I think we need to consider, I think we need to consider that everything you are and have belongs to God. I think we need to consider that. So the man knew his place, right? The tax collector, he knew his place. He knew that God was the most holy, most powerful, most great, most loving, most humble being in all the universe. He is infinitely bigger and greater and more vast than you or I or anyone on the planet. He is our creator and sustainer. And as a result, he has the right to our lives. Have you ever noticed, because I know I do this all the time, my bad qualities I like to attribute to bad parenting or bad environment or just some jerk at school who treated me the wrong way and now I got this weird complex about myself. But my good qualities, my diligence or my hard work or the fact that I'm a type A personality or I love the container store because it keeps everything all organized and neat, I don't attribute to anyone else except me. You know, we tend to see our niceness or goodness or kindness as our gifts to God rather than God's gifts to us. We tend to look at ourselves and our, evaluate our intelligence and our, and our whatever it is, our diligence, our, or the fact that we're really good friends or the fact that we're really, you know, uh, really responsible ethically, morally. And we tend to not attribute that to God, but say, God, I'm going to, yeah, this is my gift to you, buddy. And that's part of the reason I think we have a hard time really feeling the need for God because, hey, we're pretty darn good people. What do we need God for? but I think we need to consider that everything we have and are belongs to God. When we recognize that our best characteristics are gifts from God and we give that back to him, that's when they can really be used for God's glory. And that's when they can really give us life. In light of this, maybe you can pray. God, I know I'm doing really well as a teacher or as an accountant or a mom or a fill in the blank. And I thank you for those good gifts that you've given me because I know in James it says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. Well, how can you tell if Jesus' kingdom is not about comparing the wrong things but considering the right things? How can you tell if you're considering the right things? We said that, oops, considering that our sin is trying to find our identity in anything else besides God. Well, I want you to ask yourself this. When was the last time you felt overwhelming anger, paralyzing fear, devastation, overpowering satisfaction relating to your work, family, hobbies, or relationships? I think that's one way you can consider or find out whether you're considering the right things. When was the last time you had a overwhelming fear, uh, paralyzing, or sorry, overpowering satisfaction, paralyzing fear, devastation relating to your work, family, hobbies, or relationships? That's when you know you've considered the wrong thing. You know when it happened for me? Um, I remember last year I got an evaluation from one of the administrators at my school. And uh, I, I think that I'm a good teacher. 
I mean, I'm still up till like 12 o'clock, one o'clock, trying to come up with these lesson plans that'll engage students. And, and I spend time talking to them and, and being there for them. And, uh, she asked me, um, some questions that really offended me. I was like, really? And when I got my evaluation, um, uh, you know, one of the things she asked was like, uh, do you really uh, love your students? And I was so floored out of my mind. I was like, you got to be kidding me. And I remember driving home that day and I was so consumed by this. I couldn't sleep. I, I couldn't, you know, think. And I was just like, well, you know, forget it all. <laughs> Forget it all, man. I'm just going to be a jerk of a teacher and not put all the time that I put in and all the effort that I put in. This is what I get. This kind of evaluation. That's when you know, and that's when I knew that I was considering the wrong things. You know, in the recent past, I think it was like a month or two ago, I was like uh, uh, depressed like all summer, this past summer. And uh, I wasn't like... You know, uh, I can get by on my personality and, and things more than the, you know, a lot of us can do that. A lot of us who are in church, we can get by on personality and niceness and all these things. But I was really depressed this past summer uh, over some relationships that I had lost. And uh, I was devastated. I mean, I remember telling Renee, I was devastated that these relationships were lost. And I knew then well, not then, but a little while later that I was considering the wrong things, that my stock was put in the wrong place, that I was basing too much of my worth and my value. I was getting, you know, that quote from Tim Keller. I was finding that I had sinned. I was living in sin. I had made my job more central to my significance than my relationship with God. I had made my relationships more central to my happiness than my relationship with God. And I knew that because of these overpowering emotions I was feeling. You can just ask yourself that. I want you to also ask yourself, is your view of God getting bigger or smaller? There's a book, uh, Prince Caspian, and in the book, uh, it's, it's a story written by C.S. Lewis, but Lucy, uh, the young girl here in this slide, goes to Narnia. It's a place where Aslan, represented by the lion, he rules and reigns, and she has a relationship with Aslan, and, and Prince Caspian is, is, is one of the books in the installments, but this is Lucy's second time to Narnia, and she says this to him. Um, sorry, I forgot to mention this, but Aslan is, if you're not familiar with the story, Aslan is an allegorical figure for Jesus, okay? And so Lucy says this, Aslan, this is the second time she's seeing him, you're, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And I want you to ask yourself, is your view of God getting bigger or smaller as the years go on? I am not, little one, but every year that you really grow, you will find me bigger. So again, the kingdom is not about considering the wrong, sorry, not about comparing the wrong things. It's considering the right things. And the second point Jesus' kingdom is not about best behavior, but being broken. The Pharisee says this, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I can get. Well, you know what? Best behavior is not primarily what God wants. And unfortunately, this is what we usually think. That the kingdom of God is primarily about best behavior. And it's primarily about 
not doing those sinful things. But we just talked about that. We said that sin is not just breaking rules, but it's sin is also making something else more central to your significance, happiness, and purpose rather than God. You may think, well, well, well this happens all the time. I mean, I, then I guess I'm sinning all the time, right? You know, I, I mean, I get devastated when I get ignored by my boss. I get consumed by the Chicago Bears and the fact that they drafted an offensive lineman in the first round when we really didn't need to. I get so hurt when, by my wife and kids when I don't feel loved and I feel no need for God when everything is going well in my life. So if you're feeling that we sin all the time, because we do, what's your compensation? When you're standing before a holy and just God whom you have utterly sinned against, what's your plea? Well, I think there's two ways we try to compensate. One is pride. Pride says this, I can fix what is wrong, God. God, I promise tomorrow I will try better. God, tomorrow I I will be better at that thing that I messed up at, and and I'll I'll fix that for you, God. You know, it was funny. Last week, um, it was just Ethan and I, and we were driving home, and uh, I had told Ethan, you know, if you, uh, uh, he had asked me if he could play some games on the iPad, and I said, Ethan, if you have a good attitude, And if you do what mama and dad ask you to do, then I'll give you some time on the iPad. And he goes, all right, I can do it. And I go, "Uh, Ethan, you know what? Maybe you want to ask God for help because, you know, sometimes we're bound to fail at these things. And so it's really important when you want to do something to ask God for help. And he goes, no, I don't need to. I can do it. And I go, no, no, Ethan, I think you should really ask God for help. And he goes, no, I can do it. That's pride. It shows up in the littlest kid to the oldest adult. When we say, I I, I got this one, God. I got it. I got it. That's pride. But you know, the weird thing is you can be prideful by being religious or totally irreligious. You can be very proud because either way it says, I don't need your help. I want you to read this. There's a, uh, if you're familiar with humanism and a lot of the new atheists, uh, the new atheists are kind of baffling people in the church because they come up to church people. I have a, a buddy of mine who, uh, can I black that out before we read that? Sorry. Uh, a, a buddy of mine who said, uh, I was sitting with him and just talking with him and he goes, Bob, why do you need a book to tell you what's good? I don't need that. If you need a book to tell you how to behave and be good, then dude, you've got some bigger problems than just needing God. And he goes, why do I need a book to tell me to raise my kid the right way? I don't need a book to tell me that. I know what's right and what's wrong. If you don't know what's right and wrong, then you've got some problems. And the new atheism is confounding a lot of people in the church. We hear that and go, yeah, but you still need to come to church, okay? Just, you better come to church. This is a, a quote taken from the humanist, uh, oops, manifesto. It's just a kind of a, a document that a bunch of people in that realm had written together and said, this is our creed. This is what we live by. We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. While there is much that we do not know, humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. You can be proud by being in the church. You can be proud by being outside of it. That's one side of the coin. What do you do when you're stuck with the fact that you're comparing the wrong things, that you are sinful before a holy God? Well, I think the other thing is despair. Despair says, I can't fix it. Just just forget it. I'm thrown in the towel. Despair, I think, is what happens to a lot of us who are Christians, where we just go, this is just, it's just too much. 
I mean, who hasn't struggled with the idea of, man, if, if I can, all these requirements and all these demands and stuff, it's just too much to live by. I, I see my, my friends and I see the guys living around me. If I could just bail out on this marriage, I would just be, it would just, it's just so much easier than what we're trying to do right now. If I could just stop, you know, going to work and if I, if I could just stop being the good Christian, Gosh, it would just be so much easier. And I think we get to that place of despair. And you can tell when you're in despair because you just want to give up. You just want to stop for God's sake. And I think both of those responses are totally not about what Jesus' kingdom is about. His kingdom is not about best behavior and trying to fix that through pride or try to give up on it through despair. Brokenness is what God wants. The tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Knowing who he is, knowing who God is, the tax collector knows that the only appropriate response is to throw himself at God's mercy. You know, I usually put the kids down to sleep um, when I'm home. And uh, there's so many nights of the week when after I'm done, uh, you know, after Renee and I are done feeding them and bathing them and putting them down, you know, and what we usually do is I sit on their bed and read a book to them and then it's time to pray. And I just feel like the biggest jerk. Because all I've been doing, I've been at, away at work for about, you know, 10 to 11 hours. And I've got about two good hours with the kids. And all I do in those two good hours is, what is wrong with you? Get over here. I'm going to, you know, if you don't come over here. And I'm just yelling at them. And in fact, it happened this morning as I was trying to prep for this sermon. And Ethan comes up and grabs the iPad. And he starts trying to play Angry Birds. And I go, Ethan, this is the last time I'm going to ask you, give me that iPad. And he, he goes, hmm. And he just starts crying. And I go, gosh, what a jerk am I? And it's usually when we're sitting down and we're kneeling down to pray. And I'm just like, if my kids don't know that I'm a phony fake, you know, I feel it right now. And I don't know what to do with that sometimes. And I just go, guys, I'm sorry, dad. I was such a jerk. Please forgive me. And, you know, kids are so easy. They're so forgiving. We forgive you, Dad. And I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, you should really treat me pretty badly, at least for two minutes. That would make me feel a little bit better. But kids show mercy, right? And when you get that mercy, you're like, don't give that to me. Just give me a little bit of meanness, and then I'll feel like, all right, at least I was justified because now you're a jerk back to me. But when they just go, yeah, you're, we forgive you, Dada. It's just kind of like, uh, uh. and most of the time I come down and I tell Renee, honey, I, you know, maybe we just need to get some more sleep. I think maybe I just need some more sleep because I'm just so irritable all the time. Or we come up with some plan. Okay, so when this happens, we're going to give them a yellow light so that at least it's a check for ourselves so we don't get so angry and so frustrated right away. What do you do with all the guilt that you have at the end of the day? What do you do with your guilt from home? If you're a stay-at-home mom, my goodness. The times when I've tried to stay at home, it's, it's just it just utterly devastates me because I have a certain image of myself being praise leader, you know, going to church and, you know, being this person. And then when I'm with my kids at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm just a big jerk. That's really what I am. What do you do with all that guilt when it's just, Oh my gosh, what do you do with your guilt from work? At the end of the day, I get in my car and I just go, My goodness, I just had a team meeting, and all I did at that team meeting was complain about work, tell everyone what a jerk my boss was, and um, just, you know, and then I'm going to go to church, or I've got this small group. 
what do you do with the guilt from your relationships? You know, maybe you know that you've just been a terrible friend or a short-tempered spouse. I usually have some plan or vow of how I'm going to be better. And because I'm type A and I can make a schedule and I can make a plan, you better believe that those plans are going to be implemented. But you know what? Jesus is telling us your plans are good. They're fine. But don't forget, I give grace to those who are broken. Psalm 51:17 says, "The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise." It also says this in James 4:6, "God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." I want you to remember as you start this week, when you start with your failures and you've got your plan to implement it, you are refusing God's grace. God wants you to be able to just admit, Lord, I'm broken. I am so sorry for my sin. Have mercy on me. And just like when our kids say, you're forgiven, God can do that. I'm afraid that most of us just feel bad and just leave it there. <clears throat> that attitude, like I said, just totally refuses God's grace. When you feel bad for being a bad mom or dad, when you feel bad for being a terrible employee, when you feel bad for being a terrible a spouse or fill in the blank, most of us just have that plan and we just feel bad. But God wants you to say, God, have mercy on me a sinner. And that's when he floods you with mercy and grace and the ability to do those things. In Jesus's kingdom, he comes near to help, near to help those who say, I know who I am. I know what I've done. I know what I deserve. So here I am. Have mercy on me. And right when you're expecting a lashing or a beating or a whipping, or some kind of shame, he surrounds you with his arms of love, and he says, I've forgiven you. It leaves you feeling helpless. That's a crazy idea. Admit your failure. Admit you can never live up to God's standards. Admit you can't change, and God will show mercy to you. It's the idea that's so hard for us to swallow. I am needy. And I need you, God. You're so bad. You and I are so bad that Jesus had to die. God himself had to die because you and I are so bad. Yet, we are so loved that he was willing and wanted to. At the end of Les Mis, Javert is contemplating his life. And you know, I, I, I told you that Valjean had the opportunity to kill Javert, but he let him go. And this is um, Javert's uh, song. Vengeance was his and he gave me back my life. Damned if I'll live in the debt of a thief. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There is nothing on earth we share. How can I now allow this man to hold dominion over me? I should have perished by his hand. It was his right. Is he from heaven or from hell? And I think we see that to Jesus every day. Damned if I'll live in someone's debt. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. How can I allow this man to hold pity and dominion over me? Jesus Christ was the son of God who came to give his life as a ransom for sins. And the only way you can receive mercy and grace for your failures, for your inability to live up to your standards is by asking for it. Learn how to throw yourself at his mercy moment by moment. When you screw up with your spouse, maybe on the car ride home, 
before you say, I'm sorry, learn how to say, God, have mercy on me. After you're done doing whatever with your family, if you have children and you screwed up today, learn how to say, God, have mercy on me. Stop feeling bad about things and let your brokenness lead you to Jesus. Learn how to live in his debt. Don't say like Valjean did, damned if I'll live in debt to anyone. Allow this man, Jesus, to hold dominion over me. You know how powerless that feels? I hate living in debt to anyone. When someone invites me over, I have to invite them back. When somebody gives me money, I got to pay them back. When somebody treats me nice, I want to treat them back. I don't like living in debt to anyone, let alone someone who can tell me how to live my life. But Jesus is saying, that's the only way to live. He says, how many times? The one who tries to keep his life will lose it. Yet the one who loses his life will be the one who finds it. It is so hard to get to that point. And uh, Tim Keller had a woman, uh, Tim Keller's a pastor of a church. He had a woman in his congregation come up to him at the end of one of his sermons, and she said this. This whole teaching that you're telling me, it's kind of scary. And she told him this quote. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. That's scary. But that's when we're reminded that Jesus Christ is gentle that he being very God was the one who humbled himself and served us. He was the one, although he could have wiped us out when he was hanging on the cross, highest God of highest gods who could have just commanded everything and made us all robots and minions to his will. lets us live and choose him. Well, How can we humble ourselves? Jesus says this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's so hard to follow Jesus, especially if you're a good person. Because a lot of times we spend our time just comparing ourselves to the wrong things instead of considering the right things. And we think that Jesus' kingdom is about being Uh, being better instead about being broken. Learn how to be broken. You know, my biggest takeaway from this sermon for me was to pray. It's so hard for me to pray. I love to multitask. If I can get two or three things done at once, amazing. I am the most amazing dishwashing prayer you'll ever meet. I am the most amazing vacuuming prayer you'll ever meet. I love to multitask because then I, yeah, okay, I got two things done. I prayed. But this week, God was challenging me, do nothing but pray. And that's when I say, damned if I'll live in that kind of debt. Jesus, don't you know how much I could get done? But that's when I throw myself at his mercy as a type A, wanting to get everything done. Learn what it means for you to throw yourself at his mercy. For me, whether it was for two minutes this week or five minutes, I tried to just get on my knees and just pray. And you'll find that in those moments when you throw yourself And he's right there. Let's pray. I think we have the opportunity right now to just pray. 
And I don't know what God is saying to you. I have no idea. Maybe he's bringing something up. But would you spend just a couple minutes just talking to God? I don't even want to tell you what to talk to him about. But would you just spend a couple minutes talking to him? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.